When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Let It Roll, the podcast about how and why popular music happens, hosted by Nate Wilcox. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. Today, Nate welcomes back Justin Bankston to continue We Love Rock Docs with a look at the 2005 documentary, New York Doll, which tells the story of Arthur Killer Kane and the New York Dolls. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and once again, I'm joined by Justin Bankston to continue our series, We Love Rock Docs. Tonight, we're going to be talking about New York Doll, directed by Greg Whiteley. This is the documentary that came out in 2004 about Arthur Killer Kane, bassist for the legendary New York Dolls. Justin, welcome back. Thank you, Nate. I'm stoked to be here. Excellent. And how many misty eyes would you give this documentary? Uh I would give it a number of misty eyes. It's definitely a a very human story. That that it is. It's it's essentially the story of a guy who failed in his ambition to be a rock star, despite being in a legendary, absolutely legendary band. I mean, I don't think you could find a more influential band from their particular era, inspiring everything from the Sex Pistols to the entire glam metal scene of L.A. in the 70s all of New Wave, most of punk, totally inspired by the New York Dolls, but their own career was an absolute shit show of self-defeating decisions, bad behavior, and disaster after disaster that had a ton of bad luck as well as a lot of bad decision-making. And Arthur Kane, when we start the movie is riding the bus on his way to his job at the Mormon Family History Center in L.A. Yeah, you know, it takes a long time for a band to become legendary. And if your band is not making any money during all that time, uh, it can be tough. Yes, very tough. And if you're drinking like a fish the entire time um, <laughs> and, and eating up with bitterness about it, then it, it can really, really um, pain you. But the movie starts out with Arthur Kane on the bus. And I think the key quote that I grabbed was, I was demoted from rock star to schlub on the bus. And the thing about the dolls that people need to know is that even though they never sold, they never had a gold album, they never had a massive arena tour, or made any money, these guys for a hot minute were the ticket in New York City People like Jimmy Page were pulling up and picking them up in their limos. They were um, dating the same women as Steven Tyler of Aerosmith and D.D. Ramone and, you know, just hanging with the stars, hanging out with Andy Warhol. 
They went to England and were faded. They, these guys, Too Much Too Soon is the title of both their second album and the book uh, about them by Nina Antonia. And it's absolutely their story. So it's not like this guy was in a band that played a few gigs and he thought he ought to be famous. This guy was in a band that everybody thought was going to be the next big thing for about 18 months. And that is a very, very heady experience to have when you're just coming out of your teens. For sure. That's it's a lot for a 20 year old to wrap their head around, which is partially why they couldn't handle it. Uh, yeah. But also I think there's, there's, there's always a price for being first. You know, it, it's never that band that reaps the rewards. Yeah, that's um, absolutely true. It reminds me so much of the MC5, who really were their predecessors. You know, the, the founding fathers of proto-punk are pretty much the Velvet Underground, MC5, the Stooges, and the New York Dolls. Every one of those bands was just ground into powder. Um, not... All of those, and they were all quite self-destructive as well, but I think the dolls were the most self-destructive out of all of those, as well as as just unlucky and um, seemed to be totally star-crossed. But, and the fact that they combined this wild, amateurish punk rock. I mean, they came along in an era when most new rock bands featured veterans who'd been touring for years, who'd been woodshedding for years, who had all these chops, all this equipment, all this experience. The live club scene had essentially died very quickly as the 60s turned into the 70s. All over the country, rock clubs were replaced with discos. And it went from, you know, bands like the MC5 just a few years earlier got to do these lengthy apprenticeships playing for money to high school dances and VFW halls, all this kind of stuff. By the time the Dolls came along, that whole thing was dead. There was literally no live music in New York City when they started, and they ignited the whole thing. And, like, after they established Arthur in the bus with his little cheap shirt on and his awful clip-on tie heading for his unbelievably square job at the Mormon uh, Family History Center Library, they, they get some quotes, you know, about the dolls and and they establish the two things that they tell is is I wanted to start a really wild rock and roll band which is a massive understatement and then he explains also how he got his nickname uh, because the first ever review of the New York Dolls said something about killer bass lines and because his last name was Kane and the villain in the Buck Rogers comics strips and um, B-movie serials was Killer Kane. That was an obvious nickname, and it stuck with them through life. And and the thing this movie does is a really good job of going back and forth between the story of Arthur Killer Kane and the New York Dolls, crazy, over-the-top, hedonistic, and this incredibly square and cozy and wholesome vibe at the Mormon Family History Center. So they immediately cut to one of his colleagues there at the History Center saying, I can't believe, you know, you wouldn't know it to look at him, that he's called Killer Kane. And then they cut to two little old ladies there who are like, I can't believe I know a rock star. Who'd have thought, you know? And it's very sweet the way that the, his friends at the Mormon Family History Center very clearly care about him as a person. Yeah, that's one of my favorite things about this movie is, you know, one thing I always love, one rock and roll story I always love is when 
a rock and roller finds uh, meaningful work outside of rock and roll and it saves them, you know? And sometimes they're record executives or sometimes they go into business. In this case, he went to work for Jesus Christ and it worked for him, you know? And he worked with people who respected him and valued him as a person. And it was, you know, it was delightful to, to see that he landed there, even though he wasn't making a lot of money and there was certainly no glamor in it. He was like fulfilled with his work. Yeah, I mean, this is a guy who's absolutely destitute, who, and as I explained in the movie, you know, fell out of a third story window and in a suicide attempt and, you know, had to spend a year relearning how to walk, massive head injuries, shattered elbow, shattered kneecap. They don't even mention one character, one fan at the end mentioned something about, I thought he died in the LA riots, but the movie doesn't even mention that Arthur took a savage beating during the LA riots that, that, between that and the fall, left him significantly brain damaged. And so he's got an odd effect throughout the movie, which apparently wasn't too different from his affect when he was younger. He was just a lot slower and calmer. And the fact that he became a full-blown alcoholic by the time I think he was 19 or 20 um, and pickled himself for the next 20 years, he's very much damaged goods by the time this movie starts. And the people in the library seem to recognize that and treat him accordingly. And so do his colleagues in the New York Dolls when we get to the big reunion, which I, I hate to be a spoiler about it, but obviously the New York Dolls did get back together in 2004 and he did get to play with them. But I'm getting a tad ahead of myself. I want to introduce, you know, they um, segue from this Killer Kane bit to more about how you know, the, the New York Dolls, they get Morrissey, who of the Smiths, who was the f biggest New York Dolls fan ever, and 13 years old in England in 1974 when they came over, and he hosted a festival and reunited the Dolls, but they, they use him as a talking head in the movie, and clearly lays out that they were one of the most raucous, notorious bands in rock, in rock and roll history. It wasn't just, you know, like Arthur played in a bar band that was a little rowdy. I mean, these guys set the template for the Sex Pistols, Motley Crue, on and on and on. They, they led a lot of people down uh, quite the merry path to destruction. But let's go ahead and hear our first uh, song sample. This is from their 1972 um, sessions. It's called commonly called the Mercer Street Sessions when it's bootlegged, but it wasn't actually recorded on Mercer Street. This is Frankenstein from 1972, the New York Dolls featuring original drummer Billy Mercia. the original New York Dolls with Billy Mercia on drums doing their version of Frankenstein from 1972. That was an early demo, one of their first uh, demos from 1972. And then the movie then segues to Morrissey and Bob Geldof uh, and, and their biographer Nina Antonia, who establish the context in which the New York Dolls emerged, which was the dreaded prog rock era 
when, you know, at least from people on the punk rock side of things, always tell this narrative the same way. This was the dark ages of music. Uh, this was the most boring time. It was all about, you know, long fur coats and 25-minute drum solos. If you weren't into heavy metal, there was absolutely nothing going on. And a lot of people were not into heavy metal, especially in the early 70s. So um, I think they, they do a pretty good job of laying that out. And then they also get some people like Clem Burke of Blondie and Lee Black Childers, uh, who is a fashion photographer, Dropping some great quotes, Clem Burke says, being a teenager in New York when they were at their peak, they were gods to me. They looked like male prostitutes, and it was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> and then Lee, Lee Childers has a great quote. I love the Osmonds and David Cassidy. They were obedient and easy to photograph. Then I see this crew, meaning the New York Dolls, and I say, fasten your seatbelts. We're in for a good time now. So, you know, the movie establishes that this is an ex this was an exceptionally – um, wild band that came along at a pivotal point in rock history. Yeah, it's, you know, when you think about, everybody talks about prog rock. The other big thing that was happening was like California singer-songwriter country rock, right? So you've got the yeah. Eagles or you got Emerson, Lake and Palmer, and like you can see how people might just yawn at all of that. And so something so much more direct, like the Dolls. And then the way that they took that sort of sort of throwback rock and roll and the directness of it and put it together with glam, you know, but it was a, it was a, a New York street glam that was like, it was not the art school glam of London. It was like much more dangerous and put that put together with the music. The whole vibe was much more dangerous. And I think that really excited people. Yeah, it absolutely did. I mean, New York was going through massive changes and dislocations at the time. This is right before the energy crash of 73, but New York has already been flooded with heroin. The Stonewall riots have happened, so there's a there's an atmosphere of sexual um, freedom and experimentation that's novel, but there hasn't really been a lot of education. I mean, America is still as homophobic as the day is long. It's just that we're not sending cops in to raid nightclubs where men dance with each other in New York City anymore. And so a lot of people are having this massive freak out of, oh, my God, you know, the homosexuals are taking over the planet. And other people are enjoying freedom for the first time. But nonetheless, this is still a context where everybody's dropping the F-bomb all the time. People are incredibly homophobic. And here come these kids, and Arthur Kane was a ringleader in this, of – you know, they're wearing rouge and women's clothing. and But the atmosphere, you know, David Johansson kind of acted effeminate or, sec, you know, homosexual. But the thing that really threw people off was, and this was something that became commonplace in the 80s with bands like Poison, but it was really just about straight dudes dressing up like women for fun, but not in the way – it wasn't like the football team when they would you know, do drag as cheerleaders, which they did at my high school. I don't know if they did it at yours. It wasn't like a blackface mockery type thing. It was a real – it's just hard to express. It was a real celebration of, of messing around with gender. I mean these guys were just having fun with dress-up and makeup and, and playing dress-up. And boy, did it freak people out. Yeah, and I think they knew it would piss people off, and they knew they could project, like, a dangerous, tough attitude through it, which 
is like kind of genius in a way and kind of just like the ultimate middle finger to like the the whole straight square world yeah and also the very denim and leather look of rock and roll in the early 70s i mean you know you'd had about four or five years of guys with long beards and sideburns wearing denim and suede and playing long guitar solos and being really tedious and here come these kids who can barely tune their guitars dressed just absolutely insane and flirting with these concepts of gender and then later on um you know, being totally reckless and self-indulgent in, in a really dangerous way. And, and they paid the price and paid it and paid it again. But let's get back to the movie. So then they, they, they talk about the fall of the New York Dolls and they, you know, introduce uh, Arthur's wife, Barbara Kane. They're separated, but I don't think they ever divorced. But, you know, she says, I had the unique experience of being a rock star's wife that had no money. I was never one of those pampered pets. And they establish, you know, not only has Arthur been damaged, and not only is he harp is he, is he hurt, but he's also heartbroken that that he was very very sad and very embittered about how his life turned out. He never made any money off the dolls, and seemingly everyone who imitated the dolls was having money thrown at them. And this is another thing they don't mention. But one of the bands that Arthur formed, the first band Arthur formed after leaving the dolls, Killer Kane, he formed with a guy named Blackie Lawless, who had played three gigs with the dolls as a substitute for Johnny Thunders. And then went on to form a band called Wasp that's totally um, one of the stars of Penelope Spheris' Decline and Fall of Western Civilization Part Two. I don't know if Wasp ever went platinum, but they definitely went gold and made a lot of money. So Arthur is in L.A. for that entire period when not only is it Poison and Motley Crue and so many bands that clearly were and Guns N' Roses that were clearly fans of and inspired by the New York Dolls and some of them like Poison are just stealing the whole shtick but in a really toothless and heteronormative way um you know but Arthur had that rubbed in his face for the entire decade of the 80s while he's scraping by working as a film extra you know drinking like a fish and getting violently enraged every time he sees David Johansson, the singer for the New York Dolls on TV as Buster Poindexter starred in Scrooge. And that's what triggered the horrific incident where he beat his wife savagely and then, and then attempts to jump to his death. And then the big conversion happens when he sees a ad for the book of Mormon and TV guide. And it really seems to have worked for Arthur. I mean, it's a clear case of different strokes for different folks, but God bless him. The Mormons worked for Arthur Kane. Absolutely. And I mean, you see it all the time. Like, it's not always the Mormons and it's not always an ex-rock star, but a lot of people have been scraped up, you know, by some church or other and, and found a way to live. And I got no problem with that. I think it's it's a great boon. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and and the church not only gave him something to believe in, but eventually... They gave him a job at the library, which even though it was only three days a week and total poverty wages, and he has to ride the bus for hours. For somebody like Arthur Kane, who had no skills, no resume, this infamous history, it's very hard to get a job. And you know, no no office experience in his in his late forties when when they brought him in and hired him. So 
Um, but it's also it's also telling, I think, that you know he thought he sees this ad for the Book of Mormon and TV Guide and thought he would send off and they'd mail him a copy. But instead, they sent two very young, beautiful blonde missionaries, and somehow they knew Arthur had a sweet tooth, <laughs> ladies, I guess, or just <laughs> bet by his name that that would work. And and you know, so it was always about that personal thing. And also he, he adopted the faith. He, he said he had a drug-free LSD experience for God and, and that's, you know, he prayed on it and, and felt it was true. And, um, you know, and it did sort of pan out for, for Arthur. And, and I mean, some of this is, is the, the narrative convenience of the film, but, um, I'll get to that in a second and let's go ahead and play our second song which is Jet Boy, for my money, the greatest song the Dolls ever did. And this is from their 1973 appearance on the Old Grey Whistle Test. The New York Dolls doing Jet Boy. And that was Jet Boy by the New York Dolls from 1973, the old gray whistle test, which uh, the host of the show, Whisper and Bob Harris, replied to their song with the term with two words, mock rock, and um, didn't realize he was inspiring virtually every punk rock, future punk rocker in England to love that band because they were bored as I'll get out with the old gray whistle test, which you couldn't have a better name for a rock and roll TV show that, that of that, you know, this is the prog rock uh, singer songwriter TV show and old gray whistle test. It was absolutely old and gray. There's some great shows. For, I mean, you know, it was a good rock show and everything, but boy, was it boring and tedious. Uh, if you were a hyperactive kid who wanted to see people going crazy and rocking out, which is what the New York Dolls were all about. Yeah, and that guy, Bob Harris, man, he he's hilarious. And, like, he he didn't like Roxy Music either and said something shitty about them uh, on screen after their performance. And it's like, it's almost like he wants to go on record ahead of time as being wrong about everything. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, yes. It's like the hip-hop movie where Steve Albini uh, keeps dropping in to talk about how lame sampling is. It's just like, dude, stop yourself. Stop yourself while you can. But, you know, Bob Harris was, he believed what he believed, and, and history has not been kind. Uh, and, and then uh, a miracle happens. They've established Arthur and his character, his early highs, brutal lows, been scraped up and sort of saved by the Mormons, but he's still not really happy and then he gets a call that he's been waiting for and they they quote a verse from the the book of mormon mormon 921 behold i say unto you that whoso believeth in christ doubting nothing whatsoever he shall ask the father in the name of christ it shall be granted him and this promise is unto all even to the ends of the earth and arthur gets his wish which was a new york dolls reunion and they don't really get into it. They they talk about how Arthur had come to see David Johansson, the singer of the dolls, as an enemy. They don't really get into just how awful things were. I mean, David Johansson and 
had refused to have a dolls reunion for years and years and years. When when Arthur was badly hurt, Sil Sylvain, the rhythm guitarist of the band, tried to get the band back together to do a benefit for Arthur. He got Jerry Nolan, the drummer, and Johnny Thunders to agree to come, but they couldn't get Johansson to come. And then uh, Johnny Thunders was so addled on drugs that he essentially forgot <laughs> that he had made this promise so the whole thing never panned out but Johansson was the blocking the real block and 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 this movie doesn't get into just how assholeish Johansson was during the doll's run he chewed out Billy Mercia viciously the night Billy Mercia died after their gig hadn't gone very well he chewed out Jerry uh, Nolan and Johnny Thunders in Florida and you know, told them that they were replaceable, which they then promptly quit the New York Dolls and go off to found the Heartbreakers. And he um, managed to get in good with their management team. And even though he was a, a drunk also and blew as many gigs as anybody else in the New York Dolls, well, maybe not Arthur, but everybody else. <laughs> it was a race to the bottom with that crew. But you know, they don't quite get across just how big a dick David Johansson was in this. But like he says, he's changed and he re redeems himself, um, at least for this movie and how sweet and kind he is to Arthur. I'm kind of getting my ahead of myself, but that Johansson, Arthur Kane, a dynamic and the redemption of the reunion is absolutely the key relationship in the movie. Yeah. You know, one thing I think it's important to point out that, if you're younger than us, you might not realize there was at that time in the 70s and 80s when being a has-been from a band that was like a cult legendary band didn't carry any weight. Like it, that and a cup of co and a and a quarter would buy you a cup of coffee in 1988 or 1995, right? Yeah, absolutely. This early 2000s when this thing happens and they reu reunite that's kind of around when this kind of thing started to actually have value. When like being the guy who used to be in a band, whether it's the Stooges or whatever else, that has taken on this status actually starts to have some currency, you know, culturally and materially. And so it's it's hard to wrap your head around maybe how out in the cold someone like Arthur Kane was in the 80s and 90s, because nowadays he would be welcomed with open arms everywhere. And so would anybody who was in a band like that, uh, because there's, it's just taken on this sort of cultural resonance that just wasn't there then. Yeah, I think that the, the key thing was in the 70s and 80s, rock and roll was still very much alive and vital. It had already begun to be superseded by disco music and, and hip-hop, but we didn't really know that yet. And it wasn't until Kurt Cobain's suicide, to me, that rock kind of died, and therefore you could have something like the Sex Pistols' Filthy Luca reunion tour, because before that, if the Sex Pistols had reunited and done nothing but play their old songs, people would have been like, this is just a nostalgia act. This is Pat Boone or Ricky Nelson. Like, what are you doing? You know, who cares? But once rock and roll was no longer something that punk fans and metal fans were getting into fistfights with each other about, and it became more like everybody liked punk, everybody liked metal, it's all rock and roll, and people were willing to celebrate these bands 
just for reenacting their greatest hits, you know, then that created this huge opportunity for groups like the Stooges and and the New York Dolls uh, to reunite, and basically everybody reunited. And and you know, now we've got this dynamic where once upon a time, you know, when Keith Moon jammed with Jeff Beck and Jimmy Page in a group that they joked about calling Led Zeppelin, the Who's management was out there looking for him to to drag him forcefully back to the Who. It's not like these days where people are in eight bands at once and they tape, trade tapes and record you know, albums through the mail. It was a big, big commitment to be in a band and you could only be in one band at a time. And, um, you know, just the stakes were higher. It was it had this incredible cultural currency and power that it doesn't have anymore. And so now all of rock is essentially a nostalgia act. So there's no big insult or threat if some of your favorites get to get back together and want to play some of their old uh, songs or reenact an entire album uh, song by song. People are just down for that in a way that they were not um, during those days. But let's take a word break to hear from our sponsors. When we come back, we'll get back to the plot of the movie. And we're back. And, you know, I was, I was talking about the, the killer Kane, David Johansson relationship and, and, you know, the movie um, talks a lot about that, that, that even though everybody is worried about what can Arthur still play, is he even functional? I mean, this is a guy who nearly had his thumb cut off uh, at, at the very peak of the doll's career in 73, right before their first trip to L.A. Uh, a woman named Connie Grip was his girlfriend. She tried to cut his thumb off because she wasn't going to be allowed to to go to the show to, to L.A. with the band. She later uh, tried to disembowel her future boyfriend, Dee Dee Ramone, who wrote the song Glad to See You Go-Go about her. And, you know, they don't even talk about that. So Arthur had this serious, serious injury. I mean, if you're a bass player, a guitar player, and you and you have your thumb badly cut, that's a very serious situation. And, and he didn't deal with it at all well. And for most of the second half of the doll's short career, their their roadie, Arthur Johnson, would step in and play bass for him. In fact, the footage uh, that still exists of them at the Whiskey A Go-Go, you might notice, hey, that's not Arthur Kane. <laughs> that's that's somebody else. And it was this guy, Johnson. And so, you know, Arthur hadn't been reliable even in their heyday. And so people were very concerned, is he going to be able to play? Arthur wasn't worried about that. His only worry was whether or not David Johansson was going to be nice to him or not. And, you know, there's there's some touching things. Like he talks about how he had gone to the bishop of the Mormon church and asked, talked to him about his anxieties about David Johansson. And the bishop was comforting, you know, Arthur, just be a good Latter-day Saint, do your job and everything will be fine. And then And then they get to the rehearsal studio in New York Johansson's not there for the first, or Johansson's not there for the first day. Arthur and Sil Sylvain reunite along with the new guys that they had recruited, who they didn't even know. You know, they they recruit professional musicians that are total strangers to play with them, and they show Arthur, you know, working and and learning the, the relearning the songs and 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 rehearsing with the band. And then the next day, Johansson Johansson comes in, and is immediately gracious and loving towards Arthur. And it's really the big emotional payoff of the movie. Well, one of them, one, one of the big payoffs. But, you know, it's it's very touching to see these guys who have had so much water under the bridge forgive each other and, and be friends again. Yeah, that part was great. And, you know, 
you can kind of feel, you know, I, of course it's going to go that way, right? These guys, they're older, they're they're going to see each other and everything. I just knew it was going to be fine in my heart, and so it was great when it was. And you know, there's just something about you know being in the trenches with somebody that, that there's a relationship there that that you can't you can't break forever or, or it's tough. Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, these guys were able to reunite. And the thing about Abdal's reunion in 2004 was that Johnny Thunders and Jerry Nolan had both passed away in the nineties. And like, if you notice at, uh, the end of the movie, they are, they play a clip from a radio bit and mention Johnny Thunders death in 1991 and, and say, Oh, who overdosed on drugs, which isn't true by, most it's still kind of mysterious why Johnny Thunders died, but he had leukemia, and um, Jerry Nolan also died of serious diseases. And both of them had abused heroin for many years, but neither one of them overdosed. And it's typical of of the media and everything else. Once somebody gets a reputation like that, to continue to slander them. And the other thing, though, this, the point I was trying to get to was that Jerry and Johnny were the rebels of the band. They were a, a, a tight duo. The, the band devolved into this dynamic of of David Johansson and Sil Sylvain being on one side, Jerry Nolan and Johnny Thunders on the other side, the bad boys in the band, and Arthur Kane being in the middle, but essentially sort of just turning into a ghost uh, while the band is still going on. So had Jerry and Johnny been alive, there might never have been a reunion because uh, some of those differences were pretty intractable. And, you know, Johnny Thunders was a lost soul from middle of the doll's career all the way through the eighties. You know, the replacements wrote a song about him, Johnny Don't Go. Was it Johnny Don't Go or Johnny Don't Die? But, you know, it was um just a real cult thing waiting for Johnny Thunders to die for the entirety of the eighties. And uh, you know, that's the kind of cruft of of necrophiliac sort of legends that had accrued around the dolls. And so this happy ending that they managed to have in 2004 is sort of toothless because the two main bad guys and I don't mean bad guys as in villains but just you know the bad boys of the band weren't there to have their redemption um, but they're remembered and th that's another very sweet moment is that they've got Arthur they show Ar Arthur leading the prayer before the band goes on stage and it's a lovely prayer and to me the sweetest thing he said was to remembering Billy Mercia, Jerry Nolan, and Johnny Thunders, who were not there, and, and asking that they be there in spirit, which just, you know, it's one of those may the circle be unbroken moments that makes anybody with a heart verklempt, I think. Yeah, that, that part was great. And I thought it was great that everybody participated in the, the prayer and that nobody was a dick about it and that, it was, you know, I think it probably did help everybody to think about about their fallen friends and then to go out and put on a good show for them. Yeah, absolutely. And and they do a pretty good job in the movie of giving the Billy Mercia story, which he was one of the founders of the band, a childhood best friend of Sil Sylvain. The two of them were both immigrants. Uh, Billy Mercia was a Colombian immigrant whose family had had to flee Colombia when his dad got crosswise with some local gangsters. 
uh, Saul Sylvain was an Egyptian Jew whose family had to flee Egypt uh, after one of the uh, Egypt-Israeli wars of the late 60s, early 70s. I can't remember if it was the Six-Day War, the Yom Kippur War. But, you know, these immigrant kids who became dear friends, they later had a sort of fashion business together where they made sweaters and, and other things. And, and Billy Mercy was the original drummer. And they very quickly became sort of the sensation in New York, playing at the Mercer Arts Center, and got a trip to England that was supposed to end with them being signed to Track Records, which was the label that uh, Kit Lambert, the manager of The Who, was running. But they were also auditioning for Rolling Stone Records. Mick Jagger came and checked them out at a gig. I mean, literally the world was their oyster on this trip to, to England, and Billy Mercia dies. And they, they tell the story in the movie, and it I'd always heard that he OD'd. But apparently what happened was that he was taking a lot of Mandrax, which was this sort of like a quaalude, a very powerful sedative that was very popular in England at the time. Um, Sid Barrett of Pink Floyd burned himself out on it. Brian Jones of the Rolling Stones. That was that was one of the drugs that drove him to ruin. And young Billy got a hold of some of this poison took a little bit of it and was drinking a lot, which is big no-no, don't ever mix downers and booze, and was with some girls that he didn't know very well. They weren't very educated about drugs. When he passed out, they throw him in an ice-cold bathtub and pour hot coffee down his throat and essentially drowned him. So it wasn't like Billy was a junkie. He was just a kid who got in over his head with people he didn't know well who didn't know what they were doing. And that was the moment when the dolls go from being this fun, light, exciting new band of kids, this kid rock band from New York City, and become this much darker um, story that's associated with hard drugs and with death. And it definitely sent Johnny Thunders into a spiral of negativity and self-destruction that he never pulled out of. Yeah, it's, I mean... You got to imagine being that young and out having these this experience and everything is fixing to happen and then your friend dies like it's it's worst case scenario. Yeah, it's just absolutely brutal disaster and and they never recovered and it's also the kind of thing that taints a band permanently in the record business just like everything else the music industry is high school. It's a very small pool of people. Everybody talks to everybody else. And once a band gets a reputation for that kind of trouble, that changes the whole calculus. Well, let's go ahead and hear our next song. This is Red Patent Leather from 1975. This is from a live show. Uh, the, the Dolls never got a chance to make a third album. This is one of the songs that they were preparing for a third album and recorded live. And this is from a period when Malcolm McLaren was briefly their manager and had convinced them to pretend to be overt communists. Uh, <laughs> what a dick. Inch. Yes, a dick, but we'll talk about Malcolm when we come back. But this is the, the Dolls doing Red Patent Leather.
and that was the New York Dolls in 1975 doing Red Patent Leather from their absolute last gasp as, a, as a, the original or the four-fifths of the original lineup. Billy Mercia was then replaced by Jerry Nolan, who was a great drummer and uh, definitely upped the Dolls' musicianship. Unfortunately, Jerry Nolan got sucked in to the vortex of heroin along with Johnny Thunders. One thing I found out researching for this show that I didn't know was that Iggy Pop uh, shot up Johnny Thunders for the first time when Johnny went to L.A. with the Dolls for the first time. So, yeah, tons of bad karma to go around. And they don't mention Malcolm McLaren at all in this. And I, 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 you know, they tell their story in this movie just fine. But I think, I think if, if people, I think it's worth mentioning that Malcolm McLaren got so much of the playbook for the Sex Pistols from his time working with the New York Dolls. And, you know, you're calling him a dick, but at least according to um, Nina Antonia's version of events in this, in the Dolls biography, McLaren was basically a mega fan of the Dolls. He he had met them the first time they came to England and stuck by them uh, through their various European trips and gotten to be a friend of the band and came along at a point when their management team, which was this Frankenstein monster of a guy named Marty Thau, who had um, a really good run in the 60s. The Dolls were his last ever rock and roll act. He, he was another casualty of their bad odor that they left with the industry and then these guys uh lieber and krebs who go on to fame and fortune managing aerosmith who was a complete knockoff of the new york dolls coming right up on their heels but anyway the management team had dropped him the record label had dropped him and malcolm mclaren you know he personally put arthur kane in rehab it didn't stick but he, he tried he tried to get johnny into into rehab i think the communist thing was a really stupid idea. I, I don't think Malcolm had any concept of how anti-communist America was, particularly coming right out of the Vietnam War. Um, it reminds me of, of the late period MC5, like you know we talked about last time or the time before last, when you know Sonic Smith decides to become a superhero and 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 they go glam, you know, three years too early, and you have. It's just very hard to get the stars to align to create a band that has a package that speaks to its time. And the Dolls originally had that in spades, but by 1975, when they were seen as total failures, and that's another thing the movie doesn't get into at all, they didn't really do that badly. Their first album sold 100,000 copies. Their second album sold 100,000 copies, which wasn't enough for the record label to make its money back. But a label like Warner Brothers that had a reputation for sticking with bands and cultivating bands, or even Casablanca, who you know carried Kiss through four or five albums before they made money, would have stuck with the band. But Mercury was not one of the great rock and roll labels and dropped them like a hot potato. And, um, you know, just, just, it's one of these coulda, woulda, shoulda stories. And the deeper you get into it, the worse it gets. Yeah. Well, and I will say, taking a step back, that one of the things I really liked about this movie is that it didn't take on the job of explaining everything about the New York Dolls. Uh, it, it wants you to know enough about the Dolls and their importance to understand what it means for Arthur to have been in that band and then to participate in the show. But the, the, the movie isn't to educate you about 
the New York Dolls. And I liked that about it because it was an entirely different kind of movie. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And they do, I think anybody who doesn't know anything about rock and roll can jump in and and get the story from this movie. You know, it, it does a great job of, of telling all the facts that you really need to appreciate the emotional arc of the movie. And it's, you know, impossible to tell a story in a movie as deeply as you can tell it in a book. There's just, you know, it would be a 10 hour movie or a miniseries if, if, if you tried to try to do that. So yeah, I'm not knocking the movie for not revealing everything, but there's a lot of stuff. If you know more uh, that, that enhances your appreciation. And now we're getting to uh, the final plot twist in the movie, which is, you know, Arthur Kane gets this, out of nowhere reunion of of his band that he's dreamed of for 30 years goes to England it all goes great i mean he's back there with Chrissy Hind who was an old girlfriend of his that's another thing they don't mention um but that they had actually had a tryst on one of the new york dolls first uh stays in london you know but arthur gets to experience this really joyous reunion and and his beatific happiness in the movie or at the show was one of the highlights, one of the things that made the audience the most excited. And so, you know, they, they are able to interview all these people and basically the scene in the movie, you know, they show them playing. And then afterwards, it's just this sort of montage of Arthur, 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 what a sexy bass player. He was so great. You know, and they, they show all these women come up, up to him, Arthur, I'm such a big fan. And, and then they talk about how, you know, Bob Geldof is making jokes with him. I hope you're not going back to the day job. And he's kind of bummed about it, but he is. He gets home. He doesn't feel well. His Mormon friends explain, you know, he thought he had jet lag. He thought he had a cold. 22 days later, he tells them, I need to go to the emergency room. They take him to the emergency room. They diagnose him with leukemia and he's dead in two hours. So that is just a real gut punch. And I don't want to say that the filmmakers were exploitative because they weren't. This is a very warm-hearted movie. But, man, talk about having the perfect plot twist thrown in your lap. I mean, it's just such beautiful fate that they connected with Arthur, that they were able to tell the story, that these two events happen, one, the, the New York Girls reunion, and then, two, Arthur's tragic death, but when somebody's kind of had all their dreams come true, has redeemed the big outstanding broken relationship in their life. It's just a perfect story, a really powerful character arc. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. And when you think about the fact that this first time director, you know, this, this was sort of uncharted territory, you know, nowadays, if you're going to do a documentary about a legendary cult band, it's money in the bank. Everyone's like, okay, great. Of course you're going to do that. But that wasn't the case back then. This was like, you know, this was a labor of love. You know, you can tell. And the fact that it's about this person and you get to know the person and you get to see the sort of, you know, up close story. You know, we've all heard the story of a band that doesn't make it and then you know, but they still have an effect on people. And then maybe later on, they're able to catch in on it a little bit. But it's so that's so, it's such a, like an impersonal story. And it's like this arms removed from it. But when you're on the bus with this guy, 
it really comes home. These are people, you know, that like had this experience and then have had to slog it through all the decades in between. And then to be able to like have that like sort of exalted experience and go play that show and then receive all these famous people, you know, afterwards and be, you know, congratulated and hugged. It's just, it's, it's really is affecting. Yeah. It's powerful stuff. And, and just the fact that Arthur is the star of the New York Dolls documentary. This is one of a wave of documentaries that came out in uh, the knots that really established rock docs as a genre. And it's just kind of a mini miracle. And, and Arthur, you know, was definitely the last and least of the band when he was in it. He's the quiet, stolid bass player who never moved, was the biggest screw up in the band, a band of massive screw ups. <laughs> and, and so it's a, a little bit of karma coming his way and some fame and uh, admiration. And also the, the way his genuine sweetness comes through. And I think anybody who watches this movie with any kind of open heart comes out of here with some love for Arthur Kane and their hearts. And, and that's just an irresistible combination. You know, the bad boy with the heart of gold is just gold, but let's hear our last song. And this is, uh, David Johansson, uh, doing a poor wayfaring man of grief, which was a hymn that was one of Joseph Smith's favorites. It, it wasn't written as a Mormon hymn, but it's been adopted by the Mormons as a hymn. So it's definitely a song that David Johansson sang for his friend Arthur Kane. This is A Poor Wayfaring Man of Grief. Hath often passed me on my way Sued so humbly for relief That I could never answer nay Or whence he came Yet there was something in his eye That won my love I know And that was David Johansson singing A Poor Wayfaring Man of Grief, which was one of Joseph Smith's favorite hymns and uh, definitely meant something to David and to Arthur Kane And... You know, this is one of those things that's tucked into the movie after the final credits. I must have seen the movie five or six times before I even discovered this. And I've been misty-eyed through this movie many times, but I'd never just absolutely lost it. And it wasn't until I saw that uh, performance of that song at, coming at the end of the movie that, that I really had the proverbial good cry. Yeah, I, I had missed it until you pointed it out to me today and went back and saw it. And yeah, it's extremely real. Yeah, yeah, it's it's um, you know big doings. But let's let's do our recommended listening feature. This is a band that it's pretty easy to catch up with their discography since they <laughs> they didn't get to do very much in their heyday. But definitely the first album produced by Todd Rundgren, New York Dolls, is a stone classic. Um, the band was firing on all cylinders at this point. The you know it, the production of it's been knocked, I think, since it came out. But I've really come to love this album, um, probably starting around the 2000s in a deep way. I'd, I'd, I'd had, ironically, the New York Dolls were the first band I ever liked. I was four years old. My brother brought home their second album, Too Much Too Soon. And I do this uh, cover song, Stranded in the Jungle, that's, you know, a cover of a 50s R&B novelty song. 
and I was just smitten with it at four years old and, and snuck the record out and put it on the turntable when I wasn't supposed to and left it out. Somebody painted the ceiling and paint splatters went all over my big brother's brand new record. And, and so my love hate relationship, my love heartbreak relationship with, with rock and roll began right there. Um, <laughs> but that first album is the one to me with songs like Jet Boy and Frankenstein. There's a real poignancy. And Johnny Thunder's guitar playing on the album, it's nothing fancy, but it is so brilliant. And just this new screaming sound that went on to just become absolutely influential. Um, yeah, Johnny Thunder's is a savant, like, slash genius. Like, he, in my mind, is where all the musicality of the New York Dolls comes from. And then when he goes on to the Heartbreakers, you can hear it there too. And then you can hear it picked up by literally every other band. Uh, yeah. That, that, and, you know, most of them admit openly, you know, Steve Jones will tell you, I am actually embarrassed at how much of my shit I lifted from Johnny Thunders. It was essentially the whole shtick. Oh, yeah, even the moves. It. Yeah. And, yeah. I mean, the guy was he was it he had it and you know as a person a just mess you know but like he there was there was like a he had a direct tap to something incredibly real yeah absolutely and and the thing about johnny thunders as lead guitar player even though i love the heartbreakers he was a singer songwriter for that band and it doesn't uh his lead guitar playing is it just that first New York Dolls album, that's where his legacy as a guitar player is really contained. That's where the magic is. But, you know, Johansson and Still Sylvain were no slouches, and the rhythm section was really good. They uh, had a real love of doo-wop. They were direct descendants of Dion and the Belmonts and, and the Shangri-Las and all these, uh, you know, vocal groups coming out of New York. They were unabashed fans and lovers of that um Brill building sound of the early 60s, which was totally, totally forgotten and uncool and unhip when they came along. And they combined it with this, you know, with the power and aggression of the MC5 and the Stooges and the Velvet Underground in a way uh, that was just really, really powerful. So that first album to me, that's the album to get. Too Much Too Soon has some great stuff on it. Uh, it was produced by Shadow Morton of Shangri-La's fame, who also went on to absolutely ruin the career of Vanilla Fudge with a bunch of drug-addled overproduction messes. Uh, you know, Shadow Morton was just a mess. And, and this is another wrong turn. Was they could have had Bob Ezrin, who produced Kiss Destroyer album, who was just this meticulous craftsman, um, you know, who who drew hit singles out of Alice Cooper. You know, before Bob Ezrin came along, Alice Cooper was just as lost and commercially hopeless as the Stooges or the New York Dolls or anybody, but Ezrin was able to turn them into radio gold and quite possibly could have done the same thing for the Dolls. I mean, that's the thing. When you study these bands that have these coulda, woulda, shoulda reputations and you really realize, wow, how talented they were, how much potential there was, and just with a few more tweaks, if somebody in management had been a little savvier, if somebody had cared more about the band, uh, they could have, could have, would have, should have been huge. And and it's not even just that. I'm not sad that they didn't get to be hedonistic scumbags in limos. I'm sad that they didn't get to make 
more art. I'm sad that Johnny Thunders didn't get to fulfill his potential as a creative person. I'm sad that Killer Kane didn't get to fulfill his potential as a creative person. And same for all of them. I mean, it's it's our loss. You know, it's not some favor we're doing to them to listen to their music. It's a favor they're giving to us, you know. And, um, you know, it, it's, it's everybody's loss. There's also two bootlegs that I think are important. Viva La Trash. Uh, a 1970 show for a show from Paris of uh, probably the band, the best live performance tapes of the dolls. And then the red patent leather uh, album, uh, the 1975, it's another live show. The sound is really bad on it, but it's the only place you can hear a bunch of doll songs that uh, could have, would have, should have been on their third album. Of course, the, the heartbreakers LAMF is a classic uh, there's also DTK Down to Kill, which is a live album of Heartbreaker stuff. And then there's a Corpse Grinders album out there somewhere. I haven't been able to track down. That was one of the bands Arthur Kane was in after the fact. He also, with Jerry Nolan, was in a band called The Idols that backed up Sid Vicious for some live recordings that I think are well worth a listen. Um, Sid Vicious is another person who didn't get to fulfill his potential such as it was. I do think the guy was a true star. And um, that was one of many sort of sad situations that Arthur Kane and the New York Dolls uh, found themselves in. I mean, it's like the karma of putting together something this powerful and blowing it. It's just merciless. These guys were punished and punished and punished for, for being the New York Dolls. Yeah, it's, it's pretty wild. I, I, I do want to say one thing about the discography of the New York Dolls, I think their first record, you can't not mention the album cover. Oh, uh, yes. I'm the, glad cover, you the cover of the New York Dolls self-titled album is is seismic. Like, the that album cover has had more impact on rock and roll music than the whole discographies of medium-important bands. Like, it is a just a in, indelible moment in culture. Yeah, and it and it really hurt the band at the time. I mean, there were things, you know, that's just the kind of thing that as beautiful and powerful as it is as a cultural artifact, any manager with a brain would have pulled the brakes on that and and played up you know, played down the 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 transgender dressing a bit, you know, because as late as the 80s I can remember trying to hit my friends to punk rock and the New York Dolls and you'd show them that album cover. And, you know, I I remember one particularly good friend, he was digging the music. He sees the album cover. It's over. Two years later, he's buying the Poison album cover where they're, you know, (laughs) he's buying the Poison album where the cover is, you know, a parody of the Beatles, Let It Be starring four drag queens. Um, You know, which is one of the weirdest cultural shifts ever. I mean, and, and it shows you how, being early is pretty much the same as being wrong in a commercial sense, because that power of drag essentially is, is one of the things that the dolls were playing with. And it was just too hot to handle in the early seventies by the mid to late eighties. It was selling in the gazillions for bands like poison um, who it goes without saying couldn't hold a candle to the dolls in a million years, but even the better glam rock bands like Motley Crue or Hanoi rocks 
totally got their their whole shtick from the dolls. Kiss, we also need to mention, was absolutely directly inspired by the dolls. I mean, yeah. they went and saw the dolls, uh, sold out show, all these hot chicks, you know, the the horny meisters of, of kiss are immediately intrigued but they were like we're not good looking like these guys so we'll go in the opposite direction and we'll paint ourselves up but as monsters instead of um you know uh, drag queens and the other thing about kiss was they worked harder when the dolls were out partying seven days a week kiss was in the studio rehearsing seven days a week and you know a nose to the grindstone uh, definitely pays off and the rock and roll lifestyle you know, definitely didn't pay off for the dolls, but that's one of the things without that rock and roll lifestyle, that element of danger, that's what made them so exciting. There's no shortcuts. There's no way to make rock and roll magic without, uh, you know, this is a combustible brew of, of black and white magic. And, you know, uh, you, you summon two powerful forces and everybody's going to pay the price. Yeah. <laughs> you said a mouthful there. <laughs> indeed any final thoughts on a new york doll i i just really enjoyed watching a movie about a person you know the thing about rock docs and i love them and is the the formula is so set you know at this point so whenever i get to see a film that sort of bucks the the prevailing format i'm i'm happy and the, the way this film managed to be really personal and really tell a story about a bass player just made me really happy. And I, I just think it's it's well worth watching for anybody who likes rock movies at all. Yeah, absolutely. I think anybody um, – I showed this to my mom who was in her early 80s at the time, and, and she dug it. And – doesn't didn't like rock and roll didn't care about any of this stuff but you know arthur's story uh touched her heart so uh, yeah definitely check it out and justin bankson as always it's been a treat i can't remember at the moment do you remember what we're talking about next time i don't <laughs> well it'll be a surprise it's for gonna everybody. be rad though it's gonna be awesome so justin thanks again follow the letter roll podcast on twitter at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Next week, Nate and Justin will return to discuss the turn of the millennium documentary, The Filth and the Fury, The Sex Pistols, and The Great Rock and Roll Swindle. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. Let It Roll is dedicated to the memory of Edward, Russell Thomas, and Danny Park. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.